0: Welcome to Stars and Swords, I'm Alistair Stevens. In this week's episode, we're going to explore part three of V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, and we're going to get to do it in some depth, because this was always going to be among the shorter readings of this series, but now that I've combined parts four and five into a single episode, this is by far the shortest reading, which is excellent, because it gives us the opportunity to get deep into the text and to really appreciate what Schwab is doing as an author. Part three, 300 years and three words, takes us through 40 years or so of Addie's history in France and two days of her life in New York City. We get to see both the promise and the pain of her relationship with Remy. We get the return of Luc after years apart, private and public dates with Henry. And at the end, of course, secrets are disclosed. Well, one secret is disclosed and the existence of another secret is disclosed. We are halfway there vis-a-vis the disclosure of secrets in this book. We begin with the Untitled Salon sketch by Bernard Riddell, another fictional artist, which introduces a new perspective on Addie, because unlike the earlier art pieces, The Wooden Birds and Sam's Impressionistic Night Sky, here Addie is actually depicted, and we're told appears in several other sketches. It's the first time that she has been sufficiently realized in a piece of art that we can attach an adjective to her, elegant in this case. We'll see this scene, or a scene very much like this scene, later in the reading, and it will be a pivot point in Addie's evolution. More on that when we get to it. We begin the reading proper, however, with Addie in 1724, four years after Luke's notable absence back in Part 2, and ten years after she first made her deal. Addie is wearing men's clothing, trousers and a tunic, coat and a tricorn hat, and is experiencing a different kind of invisibility than the one she is used to, a kind of unimpeachable social right to be anywhere and to do anything. She isn't invisible from scrutiny per se, but she is immune to judgment, and that amounts to the same thing. She has decided to celebrate her anniversary by climbing the Basilica du Sacre Coeur at Montmartre, and here we see an addy that is familiar, yes, but is continuing to change under the tremendous pressure and tremendous absence of pressure of her circumstances. Quote, She could have waited an hour longer and been safe within the veil of night, but the truth is she could not bear the stillness, the creeping seconds of the clock. Not tonight. Tonight, she has decided to celebrate her freedom to climb the steps of sacre Coeur, to sit at the top of the pale stone stairs the city at her feet and have a picnic much later in the book in the weeks to come we'll revisit and reconsider this image of a night with the city below the lights sparkling like the constellations above which are themselves all but invisible in the light of the city and it will be itself a major turning point for Addie. and here We get the temptation of that metaphorical mirroring. It's the movement towards something that is not yet realized, but will be significant when it is. Because, of course, her picnic is interrupted by a rakish young fellow. He, having realized her disguise and, quote, conscripted himself into the service of her secret, end quote, which is a lovely phrase, takes her to a cafe and orders her coffee, which Addie doesn't like as much as she likes hot chocolate. And yet I'm going to keep reading this book anyway, I guess. Coffee, at this point, had been a part of Parisian life for 35 years, but we are right at the beginning of the explosion of coffee shop culture, of its mass popularity. Between this point, 1724, and 1750, the number of coffee houses in Paris in real life will more than triple from around 300 to more than 1,000. See my thoughts last week on the advent of the Enlightenment and draw the inevitable conclusion. This is the introduction of Rémy Laurent, who makes an immediate impression both on us and on Addie, although there's clearly something else on her mind. She compares how well his name suits him, far better, she says, than Adeline ever suited her. But who calls her Adeline? She deliberately left that name behind 10 years ago, choosing to refer to herself as Addie, but Luke always calls her Adeline, and this is their night, even if she is resigned to his absence or is at least adopting the posture of one who is resigned to his absence there is a part of her that is anticipating him or expecting him despite herself wanting him despite herself and if so wanting him in what way Remy, by the way, is wholly fictional, though there was a boyishly handsome actor by the same name who played the son in the original Le Cage au Foy and died in 1989 at the age of 32 from HIV related illnesses. It is possible, therefore, that there is a reference here to that sad story. We move then into the cameo from Voltaire, who is presented as synecdoche for all of the elite intellectual artistic salon culture that Addie is about to experience. And honestly, it's taking all of my willpower not to just turn this into a Voltaire podcast for the next 40 minutes or so. Instead, I will satisfy myself by saying that this is a curious time in Voltaire's personal history for him to appear in the story, for him to be regarded by the story as the Voltaire that he will come to be in the years to come. He's only 30 years old at this point, and though he has certainly already made a name for himself, his first play, an adaption of Oedipus, has earned him already a medal from both Philippe, the Duke of Orleans, and the Regent of France for Louis XV, who was then only seven years old, and from King George I of Great Britain. He's only recently returned to Paris after a period spent in the Netherlands. His most recent play, as of this historical moment, was a rather embarrassing failure. But none of that matters, because the book isn't concerned with the history, rather This book, and Rémy specifically, is doing what the 19th century author Victor Hugo referred to when he said, quote, to name Voltaire is to characterize the entire 18th century. Indeed, between Voltaire and Rousseau, who will show up in a cameo later in this reading, you can encapsulate much of 18th century French thought and art. At the very least, These are the two men who Louis XVI imprisoned after the French Revolution and awaiting his execution. Voltaire and Rousseau were the two men he blamed for the quote-unquote destruction of France. More importantly, in the here and now of the story, Rémy has good and right opinions about the education of women and about the value of literacy and literature. Here, Annie gives us another nod of appreciation that we are reading this novel correctly. Quote, she thinks of the fairy tales her father told her growing up, the stories a spun of old gods. But this novel that Remy speaks of sounds like it encompasses so much more. You'll note there that the novel is not a fundamentally different thing than the fairy tale. It merely encompasses more. And in the end, it isn't Remy's boyishness that charms her or his love of literature or even his defense of women. It's that he left his home out of fear of the same fate that Addie fled. Quote, this is where the thinkers are. This is where the dreamers live. This is the heart of the world and the head, and it is changing. His eyes dance with light. Life is so brief, and every night in Drain I'd go to bed and lie awake and think, there is another day behind me, and who knows how few ahead. It is the same fear that forced her into the woods that night, the same need that drove her to her fate. End quote. And this is important, this recognition of kinship, of shared spirit, of shared fear. This will be important because it will be a major factor in some of our discussions later, discussions which are drawing ever closer. Addie asks Remy to accompany her back to sacre to enjoy her picnic, not because he is handsome or because he protects her secret, or because he speaks well or has a romantic soul. It is because she is reminded of herself, specifically. She recognizes that same need. I'll expand on that in just a little while, but it seems to me that this is one of the ways in which the invisible life of Addie LaRue is quietly, almost (laughs) invisibly, in fact, revolutionary. From there, we cut back to the present and the endearing account of Addie wasting two days until it's time to be with Henry again. The note about her fixing her hair got me wondering for the first time, can Addie leave a mark on herself? Can she write on her skin with lipstick, for example? We know from the next page that other people can apply makeup to her. Presumably, she can apply makeup to, if we make the assumption, and this is a philosophical minefield, that the application of makeup and the decoration of skin is semantically neutral, that it carries no meaning, which I'm not at all sure that I can cosign. Could Addie, though, get a tattoo? Would those marks fade, or would they be enfolded in the ongoing fading of her? Again, these are the kinds of, you know, comprehensive schematic questions that the book doesn't care about and doesn't address, but that doesn't stop an inquiring mind from wanting to know. Addie passes the time and finally makes it to the bookstore, afraid that this hope will be taken away from her, afraid that, quote, the cracks have filled back in, the curse sealed around her once again, end quote. Henry, though, does remember her, and Henry is perhaps never warmer, never more natural, never more likable than when he is interacting with B. The joke here about B sprinkling catnip in the horror section, presumably to encourage jump scares in the people browsing that section, it's the best. It's a funny idea. It's a cute reference, of course, to the cat scares of movies like Alien. It speaks eloquently of character. And the intimacy of delivery is extremely suggestive of Henry and B's relationship, which I adore. For all that this book is about the sweep and the arc and the intensity of the broadest brushstrokes, for all that this book is a melodrama, we should pause to recognize that these small moments of realism and authenticity illuminate that main story. It is skillfully done. We introduce what will be B's recurring introductory element, I suppose, that Addie has a timelessness that her face belongs to another time, and then we're off on the date with Henry, who is all winks and lopsided grins and mischief, and we have to wonder at this point how reliable the narrative voice is being, how deeply we are enmeshed in Addie's perspective, how true this is of the Henry that we're going to get to know much better in next week's reading. Or, yeah, how reflective his quirky good humor is of Addy's own elation and excitement. They arrive at the pinball speakeasy, and forgive me, because in real life I would hang out at that place all the time, but it's a really dubious date with a girl that you just met. It's like a 7 out of 10, Henry. Maybe even a 6 out of 10 for the playful asking, uh, ready to lose, which is kind of gross. Maybe not all green flags here on this first date, but that's not all that happens here. Quote, she holds her breath as she inserts the first coin, braces for the inevitable clink of it rolling back to the dish at the bottom, but it goes in and the game springs to life, emitting a cheerful cacophony of color and sound. Addie exhales, a mixture of delight and relief. Perhaps she is anonymous, the act as faceless as a theft. Perhaps, but in the moment, she doesn't care. End quote. Yeah, and perhaps. Perhaps this action is the same as using a key and a door. It is a purely mechanical interaction devoid of meaning. Perhaps the interaction with the machine is sufficiently anonymous. It is intended for repeated anonymous use, perhaps. Perhaps the triviality of the game is sufficiently absent of significance that it doesn't count as leaving a mark in any way. But the fact is that Addie herself draws attention to it. She's holding her breath and she is relieved. So the narrative voice, the author function, isn't layering this uncertainty over the story, but is describing Addie's experience pretty directly. And in that attention, what are we supposed to infer? Is she doubting her place in the world all the more acutely? That is to say that many of the old doubts which she has laid to rest have now resurfaced because of her interactions with Henry. Now that she is suddenly being remembered, does it make the forgetfulness of the world at large more acute, more present, more real? We'll conclude this sequence at the beginning of the next chapter, the internal chapter breaks in this book, by which I mean those breaks which occur even though we are staying in the same period rather than switching back and forth between the present and the past, those chapter breaks are often used to indicate the elision of time, but they are also a little inconsistent, and you can pretty much remove all of them, I think, and replace them with section breaks without changing the flow of the story at all. In any case, we conclude this pinball sequence with Henry entering Addie's name kind of, into the high score table, and that concludes with Addie holding her breath again and hoping that no one will ever beat her score, and by implication that her name, kind of, will remain on the machine. The mark will endure. And again, maybe we're penciling question marks in the margins of our book. I didn't mention, by the way, but the details of Addie's date with Henry are pretty authentic for the real-life New York City. They could indeed catch a train to Greenpoint in Brooklyn, which is where the sunshine laundromat and pinball exists in real life. The link will be in the show notes. And then it is a 25-minute walk to the Nighthawk Cinema in Williamsburg, which is showing, as of the release of this podcast, the Bob Marley documentary One Love, the Ethan Cohen movie Drive-Away Dolls, and two blocks of Oscar-nominated short films. And it does indeed have a cocktail service, so it's that kind of place, which is cool. But all at once, Henry gets out of his seat and starts pacing in the lobby, asking, we can only assume rhetorically, if Addie ever feels like she's running out of time. And Addie remembers that urgency, though she hasn't felt it for hundreds of years. And we get here fragmentary echoes of lines from earlier in the book. Quote, blink and half your life is gone. I do not want to die as I have lived, born and buried in the same 10 meter plot. That first line is given by the narrative voice during the first meeting with the darkness, right before Addy says, I want more time. The second is the first half of, I do not want to die as I've lived, which is no life at all, which is dialogue from Addy to the darkness delivered a moment before that previous line. Born and buried in the same 10-meter plot is taken from where everyone is born and buried in the same 10-meter plot, which is taken from the narrative voice's description of how time passes in Vion prior to Addie's engagement, when Addie wants to be a tree rather than be engaged to Roger. And it's interesting here that we are moving backwards in time, from the deal and the darkness to the beginning of their encounter to the morning of the wedding day. Addie isn't simply recognizing this feeling from Henry— She's reliving it. She's sinking into her own memory, moving backward to the moment of utmost urgency, which is, interestingly, not the action, not the deal, but the need, the idea that sparked it. So casually, yes, I would say this is some... Pretty red flag behavior from old Henry, particularly snapping at Addie in the lobby of the movie theater, which isn't cool. But once again, Addie is recognizing herself in another. In this instance, she's recognizing her fear, her desperation, her claustrophobia in Henry. And the choice to take him out of the Nighthawk and go in search of something new isn't so much about him as it is about her. And there's an odd mutuality to this that I haven't been completely able to extract or to unpick. Because, of course, He hasn't seen North by Northwest before, so this is a new experience for him. He is freaking out about something that is tangential to his claim, but not completely encapsulated by his claim. Addie pulls him out from something that she has experienced before to something that she has experienced before, but that reframing seems to be sufficient. We might wonder to what degree Henry is, through the sequence, less of an independent character and more of an externalization of Addie's own emotional state. That is, how much is he merely an attractive vessel within which Addie can recognize herself? And that is an incredibly loaded and important question for the rest of the book. And I say that with no condemnation, because I think it's a fascinating perspective on romantic relationships, particularly a romantic relationship for a person as unique as Addie. Being accustomed to leaving no mark on the world means we can assume that she rarely gets to recognize herself in anything. This is going to be a major element of her relationship with art, as we can already see through the curated pieces at the beginning of each part of the novel. It seems as though there's something similar happening here with Henry, and in the past too, with Remy, to whom we now return. They flirt and they walk and they picnic at sacre Coeur, and we get this interesting, important distinction, I think. Quote, Anna, Remy echoes, tucking a stray lock behind her ear. It suits you. She will use a hundred names over the years, and countless times she will hear those words until she begins to wonder at the importance of a name at all. The very idea will begin to lose its meaning the way a word does when it's said too many times, breaking down to useless sounds and syllables. She will use the tired phrase as proof that a name does not really matter, even as she longs to say and hear her own. There's a certain philosophical perspective that we might seek to extract from that. There's certainly an explicit duality between what Addie hmm, believes and wants to believe or says, but secretly, you know, harbors in her heart. I'm not quite sure how we can unpick that just yet. And certainly if we note it now and move on, we'll have more fuel for that fire in due course. Suffice it to say for now that Addie inherently considers herself, as she should, a special case. We get to the charmingly self-conscious gender play between Remy and Addie, with him first walking her home, then her walking him home. And there's a landmark now in Addie's invisible life, her first satisfying, positive sexual encounter. And while it's lovely, there's also a thread here that connects us back to the Nighthawk movie theater 300 years away. Quote, So much easier than corsets, he murmurs, kissing the skin of her collar. And for the first time since those nights in her childhood bed back in Villon. Addie feels the heat rising in her cheeks, across her skin, between her legs, end quote. Because it isn't the bed in Vion that aroused Addie back then, per se, of course, it was her fantasies of her stranger. It was the face and the form that is now being worn by Luke, who is also present in the face of Henry, and to whom she is actively comparing Henry back in the movie theatre. So we can note superficially that she is being haunted by the image of her darkness, by, of course, by extension, the terms of her deal, which makes a lot of sense. But let's begin now to consider what has been evident from the beginning, as Addie lays there with Remy using the name Anna, being, crucially, Anna. Quote, the name Remy whispers in her hair is not hers, but it doesn't matter. In this moment, she can be Anna. She can be anyone. End quote. So let's consider now that the stranger had form for Addie before Luke and Luke inhabited it, yes, to torment her or to seduce her or to mock her, but she remains the artist, and his form is her art. Here, as Addie considers the ways in which we might leave marks upon the world, she is not considering the most significant of her marks thus far, at least not consciously, though her mind drifts back there constantly. There were a couple of other really interesting details during this scene before we get to the awful and inevitable conclusion. Addie notes outright that she no longer dreams and hasn't since that night in the woods where she made her deal, which casts an interesting light on chapter four of last week's reading, the scene a year after the deal is made, when Addie is drugging the client she's seduced and is taking their room for the night when Luke shows up. This is the chapter which begins, quote, dreamer is too soft a word. It conjures thoughts of silken sleep, of lazy days in fields of tall grass, of charcoal smudges on soft parchment. Addie still holds on to dreams, but she is learning to be sharper less the artist's hand and more the knife honing the pencil's edge, End quote. And this is the chapter two, which ends right after Addie notes that the shoulders Luke shrugs are the ones that she drew, the ones that she conjured into being. The chapter ends, quote, if some part of her wavered, if some small part wanted to give in, it did not last beyond a moment. There is a defiance in being a dreamer, End quote. So if Addie doesn't dream, and we have been told a couple of times in the book that she is dreaming or has dreamed, but always in soft, ambiguous ways that could be interpreted as daydreaming or as fantasizing or as merely longing. But if Addie doesn't dream, then what do we make of that previous chapter? Why is dreamer, which we remember is one of the few things that Addie's mother and Addie's father and Estelle could all agree was true about the young Adeline, why is dreamer a soft word? What is hardening in Addie. Why is she even then, a year after the deal, already more like the knife that sharpens the pencil than she is like the hand of the artist? In the moment, we can see that metaphor quite clearly, right? She is manipulating this guy into drugging himself with laudanum so that she can take his money and borrow his authority as a man to sleep in safety and comfort. Well, let's note how the metaphor shifts, though, from the hand of the artist to the blade of the knife. But Addie never self-identifies as the pencil itself. She can wield the pencil or she can sharpen the point of another, but she herself is never the means of art, is never the tool, is never put to direct use by another. From artist to muse, but never, perhaps defiantly, the object itself. And this matches our understanding of Addie back in Vion, though perhaps it's never been this clear before. The small life that Addie fled, particularly the specific life offered by Roger and his motherless children, is a life of duty. It is a life of use. And in a sense, all life in a society must encompass some sense of use and utility. On some level, there are always things that must be done to facilitate everyday life that are never going to be themselves enjoyable. Though, here too, I'll gesture toward my discussion on capitalism and productivity last week and mark the need of balance between utility and... Well, well, what? What to Addy is the opposite of being put to use. That will remain, I think, an interesting area of discussion. Ultimately, although the book affirms Addie in her personal philosophy, as it should as close as we are to her point of view. This is one of the ways in which it pushes back against that philosophy as a comprehensive and complete worldview, because you can be an artist all you want, or you can be a muse all you want, but if there aren't pencils, then nothing's getting done. Nothing is created. Though, again, that too is a thought for later in this book. Damn this book and its late reveal structure. For now, though, we can ambiguously either see Addie as the hand of the artist or as the sharpening knife, but we see her in the manipulation of the pencil, right? The man in the room, now passed out on laudanum. She may not feel good about it, but she certainly doesn't feel bad about it. She refuses, however, to be used in a similar way by Luc, to be manipulated, to be made the implement, the tool, the pencil. She will put to use, but will not be put to use, and this is our clearest perspective on Addie as a person so far, and it's nothing less than brilliant. But let's look back to the dreams. What is the defiance that we find, then, within the dreamer? What is its root? The answer here, and to bring together these two strands of thought, albeit somewhat inelegantly, I think can be found in Addie's dreams themselves. From Part 1, Chapter 5, quote, he is, after all, only a figment of her mind, a companion crafted first from boredom and then from longing, a dream to keep her company, end quote. And from chapter nine, the making of the deal, quote, the voice spills from a perfect pair of lips, a shadow revealing emerald eyes that dance below black brows, black hair that curls under his forehead, framing a face Adeline knows too well, one that she has conjured up a thousand times in pencil and in charcoal and dream, end quote the stranger is the only specific dream attributed to Addie in this book. Besides this, the only other elements of dreams which the narrative mentions are of non-specific freedom. And if Addie's dreams are of the stranger, then we might wonder how they give her defiance, and we might wonder why she doesn't dream now in a world in which her stranger has been taken over by the darkness, although even as I say that, I realize I may be answering my own question. And if in all of this you sense that there is a balance at the heart of this book that might be shifting beneath our feet, but which will not be revealed for a good long time yet, then I'm right there with you. We're not moving as quickly through this week's reading as we ought, which is what happens when we have the luxury of sinking into the text and performing some real close reading, but we can't leave Remy behind before noting another instance of the narrative voice, leaving ambiguity, leaving Addie's actions open to interpretation. This is from the end of the chapter, after Remy has woken in the middle of the night and Addie has already been forgotten, and the genuinely awful moment when he hands her the money. Quote, Something catches her eye, a bundle of paper askew on the floor, the booklet from the cafe, the latest of Voltaire. Addie doesn't know what drives her to take it. Perhaps she simply wants a token of their night, something more than the dreaded copper in her palm. But one moment the book is on the ground, cast off among the clothes, and the next it is pressed to her front with the rest of her things. End quote. Addie claims not to understand the reason why she steals the book, which at this point we know from her time in the cafe the previous evening she can barely read, but then points directly at the explanation. It's not the money. The money is given in the relatively good-hearted assumption from Remy that that she is in fact a sex worker. She takes the Voltaire to prove that she is not. She takes it to demonstrate that women can be more, that with the intent, conscious or unconscious, of quote-unquote improving herself, she is creating distance between that assumption and her real self. And I read this as being consistent with, as being similar to the kind of urgent self-improvement that people undertake all the time after a relationship comes to an end, particularly if you are the one that has been broken up with. Many of us strive in those moments to transform ourselves, to seek affirmation and accomplishment, yes, but also to be redefined in order to create emotional distance and separation and distinction. I can't be heartbroken because the person who got dumped couldn't make sourdough or speak Italian or blow glass or bench 200 pounds. I'm a completely different person now and are thus demonstrably emotionally fine. Poor Addie. Back in New York, Addie takes Henry to the fourth rail, and the joke here that the New York subway system runs on three rails, thus, there is no fourth rail, is maybe a little undercut by the existence of places that do use a four rail train system, including notably the London Underground, but it still works nonetheless. The club is fictional, but inspired by real life bars and clubs in other abandoned subway stations throughout New York City. The club is also, we learn, the fruit of an idea seeded by Addie herself. And that might account for the difference between Hitchcock at the Nighthawk and this club. The intensity and immediacy of the present tense narrative voice has perhaps never been more effective than in the sequence, though I will argue that it is even more effective later in today's reading, right at the end of today's reading. But here it creates a perfect match with that disjointed tangle of action and and just overwhelming existence, the overwhelming existence of the music and the dancing and everyone around them. The fairy girl singing, of course, her hair arrayed like a crown is another powerful fairy tale element, making it clear that this club is something like the realm of fairy itself, a space which exists outside or alongside the real world. The fact that it does not exist and is populated by fairies is very compelling. It's seductive, it's dangerous, and you emerge, if you emerge at all, transformed. And that reading is all but confirmed with the explosive release of emotion, the reflection of that emotion in the natural world when they stumble out into the night. Henry laughs and the storm begins. They're renewed by their experience and then renewed again by the rain. They descend into the primal and are then cleansed of that descent and restored to humanity, to civility. Henry kisses Addie, says her name and she is immediately aroused. Quote, the sound sends sparks across her skin, end quote, and all at once they're back in Henry's place. Quote, and then they're on the bed, and for an instant, only an instant, she is somewhere else, somewhere else, the darkness folding itself around her, a name whispered against bare skin. But to him she was Adeline, only Adeline, his Adeline, my Adeline. Here now she is finally Addie. Say it again, she pleads. Say what, he murmurs. My name, end quote. and if we're still unsure of the subtext, well, here it is made text, made explicit, and I don't want to suggest that Henry is incidental to these proceedings, or that Addie's feelings aren't good and strong and virtuous, but we have to acknowledge that this again is Addie taking pleasure in the affirmation of herself? And here, to make it even more clear, she's taking pleasure in the claiming of herself and her new name in the rejection of her old name. She's taking pleasure in the image of her stranger in the form of Henry in the rejection of the image of her stranger in the form of Luke. I'll note here too that this week's reading, particularly in combination with next week's reading, makes it clear that Henry's effectiveness in the story, his his appeal, is directly proportional to how deeply we are in Addie's POV. The closer we are to her, the better he works. And the further we are, well, we'll see next week. From there, we're back in Paris, in the direct aftermath of the scene with Remy, now out on the street as Addie walks, and all at once, after four years, Luc is there with her. We get the direct connection between Adeline and Anna, two names which do not belong to her, and we get the rejection of Luke's offer triggered by his own smug expression of victory. The battle lines are familiar, and the reversal here is a particularly, peculiarly deft bit of writing. Quote, for a moment she doesn't trust herself to answer. The weight of the coins in her palm is still too fresh, the pain of the night torn away, and victory dances like light in Luke's eyes. It is enough to force her to her senses. End quote repetition, confirmation, the weight of pressure. She doesn't trust herself because of the coins and the pain and the victory in Luke's eyes. These are incremental, compounding each other as reasons that she doesn't want to answer his direct question. This is why she is feeling the pressure. But right then, without punctuation, without delineation, the very thing that is driving her into doubt is the very thing that secures her certainty. That is defiance for you. We close out the chapter with Addie devoting herself to reading and using the book stolen from Remy's Room. And there's an odd historical quirk here because, as I mentioned, this is very early in Voltaire's career, and he hadn't historically written a novel yet. The closest thing is a little 10-page novella called The One-Eyed Street Porter, written in 1715. Furthermore, La Place Royale, the title given to the book taken by Addie, is not a Voltaire book. It's a five-act romantic comedy play written 90 years earlier by Pierre Corneille. And none of this matters, of course. We might even speculate inventively that this is a lost Voltaire adaptation of that play, or that Addie will later realize that this is not Voltaire when she's more comfortable with the written word, or that it's an entirely different book altogether. So I mention this not as criticism of the novel, but just as a footnote. In chapter seven, Addie wakes in Henry's apartment, and we linger in the happy little domesticity of the scene until Henry finds the wooden ring on the floor, And the first time that I read this book, I had simply assumed that this was the ring returning magically, as we've seen it return before, showing up even after Addie had thrown it away. But that's not the case. I mean, that's probably the reason why it's on the floor rather than in Addie's pocket, if we're inclined to speculate. But she already had it in her possession when she gives her name to Henry in last week's reading, and not that much time has passed, and we certainly haven't seen her throw it away since then. Addie describes her conflicted feelings, and Henry draws the comparison with his own Star of David taken from a drawer in the kitchen, and Henry's distance from his former faith casts a shadow on his past that we will definitely dive into a little more fully next week. What's important here, though, is how we track Addie's emotional state, because this is the first time in the novel that she has woken up next to a man and been remembered. We're asked rhetorically how many times she has dreamed of this. And she's happy, but only for a moment, because her thoughts quickly turn to Luke and to whether this is a trap or a mistake. And it would be understandable if we tied it back to the ring, which has so recently disrupted the quiet morning atmosphere, but we don't. We might think here of the last confrontation, when it was Luke's superiority that gave her the strength to resist that fueled her defiance. And we might wonder whether it is his conspicuous absence from this unexpected and unprecedented good fortune that makes her now feel insecure, that Luke at least represents where the walls are, where the boundaries are to her ongoing state. Henry notes that Addie has drifted into thought and brings her back, though when she comes back, it's with a question about which food he would eat if he could only eat one thing forever, a future which would consist then of a blurred present with no change and no evolution, indicating that she is still thinking of her deal. And we're leaning heavily here on the foreshadowing with Luke and I will break my own personal rules just a little bit to point out that it's right around this spot that I guessed at what Henry's deal would eventually turn out to be, which I say neither as a criticism of the book or a celebration of my own, you know, incredible analytical powers, but rather an acknowledgement that though the book does enjoy its late reveals, it lays appropriate track for them. It rewards the careful reader with answers to questions that they may already have. And when it does so, it responds with confirmation rather than with revelation. It doesn't seek to twist for the sake of the twist. This is a book which plays fair with its reader. It's a mature and honest way of telling stories, and I applaud it, even if here, in this instance, I am maybe just a little worn out by Henry's emo perspective. I like chocolate, but I like only the really dark, edgy kind, and I like fall because everything's dying, and there's like Halloween, and I can wear eyeliner without my mom complaining about it, and have you even heard Dashboard Confessional? I'll make you a mixtape. And look, I know, I know, I'm being the guy that I don't want to be, because Henry has real issues, as we discussed last week, which ought to be taken seriously and treated with respect, but which the novel itself presents so plainly, so superficially. And I guess let me put it like this. There is a tension, fundamentally, between Henry's interiority and the presentational mode of this novel, because at least in my experience, depression doesn't sit on the emotional surface. It isn't always conscious, and it isn't always clear, and it can be subversive, and it can be concealed, and it can be denied. But the expressive style of this novel, the presentational mode, the emotional tone, doesn't allow for that kind of emotional subtext. It doesn't allow for there to be consistent space between what is said and what is meant. So there's no Interpretation to be done on what Henry says to Addie during this sequence. It's just right there in front of you, on the counter. And to be fair, the same is true for Addie, little Miss I like breakfast and springtime and beginnings because beginnings are all I have. But Addie's emotional state is metaphorized into the shape and the structure of the story. And Henry's isn't really metaphorized at all. It is clinicized, it is distilled, it is represented only by itself, which inevitably makes its expression somewhat blunt and obvious, even if we weren't already and naturally more in Addie's perspective than we are in Henry's. So it's not just subjective taste that makes Henry's depression a problem in the story. It's that the depression itself is somewhat incompatible, or at least generates a definite and observable friction, with the narrative style of the novel itself. So when it is expressed, it's often expressed in exactly the kind of semi-performative, superficial way that we associate with teenagers taking emotional depth out for a test drive. In any case, this is when we get Addie's investigation of Henry's apartment and her active, conscious search for some clues as to who this guy is. And there's a lot of lovely detail here, even if he comes off perhaps as something of a dilettante. And there's a loveliness to this, particularly to the end of the chapter in which Addie wonders aloud, who are you? because it would be easy for the author to plant exactly the right objects and to hand Addie exactly the right inferences in order for her to paint an accurately sophisticated picture of this young man. But that's not emotionally real, and people are more complicated and contradictory than that. In the next chapter, Addie and Henry picnic on the varied cuisines of the world, then pick up dessert and head to B's dinner party. The bakery is particularly interesting here because it isn't just another hidden place in New York City, like the Fourth Rail, for example. It isn't just another opportunity for Addie to demonstrate her strange worldliness because it's more intimate than that. It is France. It is French, both in terms of the language and in terms of the culture. It feels like home, and that makes it more intimate. It's not Addie exploiting her knowledge of New York City, it's Addie taking the first step toward connecting her authentic self to Henry. Addie's decision to accompany Henry here is sweetly heartbreaking, too, because it's made in the certainty that their relationship won't last. No matter the impossibility of their connection here in the present, Addie knows by implication that this will not endure, that no matter what has caused this brief respite from loneliness, it will come to an end. So rather than live fearfully and hoard the moments that they have together with a jealous, miserly obsession, she opens herself up to the present, knowing that it will pass all the sooner. It's admirable. B welcomes them to the party, with the repetition of the line about Addie's face being timeless, which this time Henry catches, and we introduce our extended cast for the evening. We get a beautifully ambiguous line at the end of this chapter to, quote, she is used to having all of the attention or none of it, to being the brief but sunlit center of a stranger's world or a shadow at its edges, this is different, this is new, end quote. Different and new. No judgment, no qualitative statement, just the objective observation that this does not happen to Addie, which is strange because it definitely does. In fact, we are going to see her in the midst of a party later in this reading, 300 years in the past. And if it's not entirely a new feeling to Addie, we must wonder what it is that she is trying to express with that thought, this is different, this is new. Are these emotional placeholders for I'm uncomfortable and I don't like this, or perhaps this could come to an end at any moment? I know that I said I would talk about my least favorite character in this book during this week's episode, and I could, I really could, but I have a much better opportunity in the middle of next week's reading, so stick around for that. Ugh. In Chapter 9, we're back in the past, with Addie meeting Madame Geoffrin, a real-life patron of the intellectual and artistic elite in Paris during the period. Addie has practiced this interaction, so she now groundhog days her way through the best version of it, securing herself an invitation to the salon. We get the mention of Remy, who she encountered during a previous meeting at the salon, now mature but still reminiscent of the boy he was. And then, after six years of absence, Luke shows up. Quote, Monsieur Lebois, says Madame Geoffrin, greeting her guest, and Annie wonders for a moment if their crossing paths is only a coincidence, if her shadow favours the salon, the minds fostering within, but the men who flock here worship progress instead of gods, and already Luke's attention has fixed squarely on her, his face suffused with a coy and menacing light. End quote. A couple of really interesting things here. Le bois is the wood, as in timber rather than forest, which obviously connects Luke back to the natural world, far from the artifice of the salon itself. More interestingly, though, is Addie's thought that begins, quote, if their fostering paths is only a coincidence, if her shadow favors the salon, the mind's fostering within. The worshipping of progress rather than God's Might not be completely an accurate encapsulation of the Enlightenment, but it is certainly evocative. But really, what's interesting about that phrase is the use of her shadow, not the darkness, not the shadow. And Luke has been described as the shadow lots of times in the past, but specifically as hers. There is possession, there is belonging. And I'm tempted, because I'm me, to think past that, to think of the relationship between Ged and his shadow in Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea, which I won't spoil right now, but might circle back around to later in the series as a point of thematic comparison. The other thing that the phrase her shadow does is evoke the cold-open epigraph at the beginning of the novel, right after the quote from Estelle. Her name is being called out, but, quote, Her shadow stretches out ahead too long, its edges already blurring, and small white flowers tumble from her hair, littering the ground like stars, end quote. Her shadow stretches out ahead too long, yes, I mean, that feels like obvious foreshadowing, doesn't it? But what's even more interesting here, perhaps, its edges are already blurring. More on that later. In any case, Luke ruins everything like a big old jerk, and Addie flees out into the street, and we get the foreshadowing of an idea, get our attention drawn back to an idea, an idea that we have already picked up from the text an idea that is laid out for us explicitly in the first part of the novel that ideas are wilder than memories though what exactly that means beyond the superficial interpretation and Addie's ability to play the muse we have yet to completely understand Addie's time in the warm domestic present of Bee's pseudo birthday party passes quickly as the party fragments and she realizes that she will slip from memory and so leaves God, and yes, I know I said that I would talk about it next week, and we will talk about it next week, but Robbie is such a brilliantly written, leaking barrel full of toxic waste that I genuinely cannot stand him, a state that will only get worse through no fault of his own as we begin the next chapter and Addie and Henry go out to pick up breakfast and Robbie stumbles in and fails to remember her, and this is the narrative pressure that we need to motivate what is, I think, a genuinely surprising turn? This is Addie's confession. And I want to step back a moment from the actual text to look at the structure of the novel and how daring this is, doubly so, in fact, for reasons that we'll get to in a little while. But this is almost exactly the midpoint of the book. This is page 216 out of 442 in my hardback edition, and is exactly 50% of the way through the book in my digital copy. Quote, Henry shakes his head. How? Why? The smallest questions. The biggest answers. Because I was a fool. Because I was afraid. Because I wasn't careful. Because, she says, slumping back against the concrete wall, I'm cursed. And it's interesting that we get those three swings at an answer before Addie settles on the one, well, what? The one that is objectively true? The one which is actually correct? Was Addie a fool? Afraid? Careless? Well, textually, at least, she was careless. We're told specifically that she does not notice the sunset, doesn't realize that the prayer she's making is to the darkness. Was she afraid? Well, again, textually, yes, although there's little explicit mention of fear or of being afraid in the novel prior to Addie making the deal. So it's something more like pressure. It's perhaps closest to a nascent claustrophobia, which is, of course, how it's expressed to Luke when she makes the deal, articulating what it is that she doesn't want as tangled as it is. Was Addie a fool? No, I don't think so. Estelle taught her to pray and to make offerings to the old gods, and Estelle was clearly objectively right about their power, about their capability. So no, no foolishness. We begin with that foolishness, though, which is untrue. We move into fear, which is partly true. We move into carelessness, which is pretty clearly true, and then to the actual concrete clarity, the certainty that she is cursed. This is an emotional maneuver that I find very effective and is the second time in this week's reading, the second time that I've called out there are others besides, but it is the second time in this week's reading that we have seen this kind of repetition put to incredibly purposeful use. It's Easy to overlook this rush of present tense narrative voice as merely experiential, but Schwab has a deft hand and there is more intentionality, more subtlety in the moment-to-moment storytelling of this book than I think would be appreciated by most readers. We cut back from Addie's confession in the closest thing that this novel has to a cinematic wipe from one scene to the next to Vion in 1764, exactly 50 years after Addie made her deal. Interesting note here, as Addie considers her reason for returning to Vial. Quote, She doesn't know when she made the decision to come back, or even how, only that it's been building in her like a storm, from the time spring began to feel like summer, the heaviness rolling in like the promise of rain, until she could see the dark clouds on the horizon, hear the thunder in her head, urging her to go. End quote. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't it at least a familiar kind of metaphorical turn? Who else do we know who suffers from storms like that? And if we were to speculate about the reasons for Addie's return to Villon, if we were to attribute those reasons to some wild seeds which had taken root in her imagination, and if we were to guess, probably accurately, who had planted those seeds, well, might we see something of a similarity between this moment in Addie's mood and Henry's condition? Might we infer a much darker reading of this text than is superficially suggested? More on that next week, much more the week after. This is where the narrative perspective of the novel pays off even more beautifully than it does in the fourth rail for me. The immediacy of Addie's experience of Viand of home is so intimate and so honest and so authentic, so tangled in exactly the kind of familiarity and contradiction that we feel ourselves when we return to our hometowns, to our old neighborhoods. We note immediately here that she isn't going to stay. Even now, whatever her business in Vion is, it is still too small for her, and the storm in her mind cannot eclipse that entirely. And we get the beat too, where she considers reflexively, it seems, praying to the river gods, and then acknowledges that it is too late now. We close out the section with another structural scene, the final interaction between Addie and her mother, and it is simple and inevitable and heartbreaking, a final severing of the bonds which were keeping Addie connected to her past for all that she exists in a world of ongoing presence. Oddly, for me, it's the unfinished bowl left in her father's workshop that I find... what? I want to be more emotionally specific than simply meaningful or significant here. There there is something about the work left undone, the art left unfinished, and not just... Unfinished, but then left unfinished, left to simply persist in its incompleteness, in the slow collapse of this home, this house. It was important to her father, but is so unimportant to everyone else that it hasn't even been cleared away. Never mind completed, right? Never mind respected. It hasn't even been thrown out. It's just been left for the world to eat. From there, though, we begin chapter 13, the last of this week's reading, and we come to this book's sucker punch move. When I mentioned that Addie's Confession was almost exactly the midpoint of the novel, well, in my hardback edition, Henry's Confession comes on page 221 out of 442, literally exactly the midpoint of the novel. And look, I know a little bit about publishing, and I know that there were 700 decisions made by 30 different people that influenced the exact size and spacing and composition of the book. But there is no way that this wasn't intentional, even if not down to the exact page. There's no way that it wasn't intentional to fake out the reader with this midpoint twist from Addie and then slam dunk a second midpoint twist from Henry, all while, as I said earlier, laying the track and playing fair. It's a masterclass of putting structure to work for you as an author and of subverting the reader's expectation, even as you seem to be delivering what was promised. Because Henry, after listening to her story and recovering from his manic laughter, says the three words that are referenced in the title of this part of the novel. Not, I remember you, which we might have expected, which have been so important up until now, but, I believe you. And unlike the former phrase, the latter doesn't spark hope and joy and recognition in Addie. just confusion, and we get the echo here of Henry's earlier question, the smallest questions, the biggest answers, as she distills all of her confusion down into one word. Why? Quote, and Henry's hands fall away from his face and he looks up at her, his green eyes fever bright and says, because I made one too, end quote. And that's going to do it for this week's episode. Next week, we delve into what the hell Henry is talking about and what parts four and five of The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue do to reshape our understanding of this narrative. It's going to be a long-ish reading, 140 pages, I guess, but we'll be able to move pretty quickly. Then the following week on March 10th, we'll wrap up with parts six and seven of this book, and then we'll begin Catherine Kerr's Dagger Spell on March 17th. This show is only possible because of the generous support of the patrons of next word and if you would like to kick in a couple of dollars and help me to keep making podcasts because i don't know if you know this guys but there are a lot of books out there i have a lot of work to do well then you can head on over to patreon.com nextword where you will also find bonus episodes of this podcast on adjacent texts and i'm glad to say that i recently cleared the deck and posted both of the bonus episodes related to terry miles novel rabbits on the first season of the podcast and on the 1992 movie sneakers which is just fantastic. So if you want to hear those, as well as my thoughts on the 2005 movie adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you can get all of that over on the Patreon page. I haven't yet figured out the bonus episode for Addie LaRue, but I'm thinking about two options. They are closely matched in my estimation right now, but I will let you know next week and we can get something on the schedule. I don't know that we'll be able to do it before the end of our discussion of Addie LaRue, but it will probably be in the week after, probably in the week between Addie LaRue and and Dagger Spell. That is going to do it for the show this week, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, but this novel that Remy speaks of sounds like it encompasses so much more. Take care.